Psalm 83. Psalm 83. And it's about fighting God's enemies. This is a psalm of grief where special attention is given to the wicked. The curse that Asaph speaks out against the wicked puts this psalm in the category of the imprecatory psalms. Uh, from the word imprecate, which means to pray evil on. So you could say it's a psalm that, that prays evil on the enemies. But I'll explain that more in detail as we go along. When we read the strong words in this psalm, we need to keep in mind that the purpose of Asaph here in this psalm is to defend the glory of God. And the psalm structure goes like this. In verses 1 through 4, it's a call for God to speak out in judgment against the wicked. In verses 5 through 8, it's a reading of the acts of the wicked. And in verses 9 through 12, it's a reading of God's acts of judgment in the past. And then verses 13 through, 9, uh, 13 through 18 is a call for God to judge the wicked. The theme, fighting against God, or fighting God's enemies. This psalm is a prayer for God to do something about his enemies, whatever it takes to convince the world that he is truly God. Now, someday all the world is going to recognize and admit that God is in charge of all affairs. One day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The author of this psalm is Asaph. One of the biggest questions and one of the greatest problems for the Christian is when God doesn't do anything. We pray, we fast, we wait, and, and it doesn't seem like God's doing anything. Like it's God doesn't hear me or he's ignoring me or doesn't care or whatever, you know, that, that little thought that Satan puts into our mind. What should we think about God when he doesn't say anything? Or do anything when his people call on him when they're in trouble. Especially in light of the scriptures that encourage us to call upon me, God says, in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. Psalm 50, 15. Or Jeremiah 33, 3. When God says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And so we say, all right, Lord. So we go to prayer and then it seems like nothing's happening. Let's begin now with Psalm 83 with verse 1. And Asaph writes, do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. Again, this is a big problem for people, especially Christians. And this is what Psalm 83 is all about. It's telling God, don't keep silent, God. Don't hold your peace. Don't be still when we're surrounded by our enemies. You know, Asaph is praying, Lord, say something, do something. You can, you can sense his desperation and maybe you can, again, I'll, you know, get into his place. You can, you know, you can sympathize with him. You've been there and you can, you can just hurt, you feel his hurt or maybe his emotions, you know, that, that is going on here. He's saying, Lord, say something, do something. Just don't, just don't stand there. Just don't stand by and watch me struggle through all of my difficulties. Now, now this psalm is Asaph's last psalm. Now, you know, if you've read Asaph's Psalms, it always seems that Asaph is bothered by the wicked, especially in Psalm 70, uh, 73, I think it is. 
You know, he was, you know, he would say, man, I almost slipped because the wicked's prospering. You know, I served you, Lord. I, keep, I washed my hands of, of all sin. And, and he says, it seems like the wicked, they just seem to have a jolly good time. And the Christian just, you know, continues to just have a, a very difficult time. But again, uh, this, this psalm deals with, you know, uh, the, the, those nations that were situated all around Israel. They had joined together. They had joined forces against Israel, and they threaten Israel's existence. Asaph, like I said, he's calling on God to rise up and to overthrow these people and their plans. And again, these forces are threatening the existence of Israel. Notice, it is not any different today than it was back then. And we'll look into that even further as we go along here. Let's read now verses 2 through 8. Asaph continues, for behold, God, your enemies make a tumult and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation. Notice that that the name of Israel may be remembered no more, for they have consulted together with one consent or with one heart. They form a confederacy against you, Lord. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Jebel, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Asaph was troubled because the Lord said nothing through his prophets and had done nothing through his providential workings, that is, through his works of his hands. He didn't do anything in any of those ways to stop this huge confederacy from advancing on Israel. And these verses describe these surrounding nations, asking God to speak up and to do something, like he said in verse 1, and that's the, the, the psalm goes on to say after verse 1, Lord, don't you hear the commotion of your, of your enemies? Don't you see what your arrogant enemies are doing? They, they, they have crafty plans. They make crafty schemes against your people. They're laying plans against your precious ones. They're saying, come on, let's wipe out Israel as a nation. We'll destroy the very memory of their existence. This was, this was the agreement of all of these enemies of Israel. They signed a treaty as allies against you, Lord. The interesting thing is, is that the people mentioned here make almost a complete circle around Israel. And, you know, when you look at the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 through 39, we see this described here. The Edomites here in verse six, they were descendants of Esau who gave up his birthright. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, Abraham's grandson. The Ishmaelites mentioned in verse six, they had descended from Ishmael, which was Abraham's son by Hagar. The Hagarites, verse 6, were a tribe against whom the Transjordan, the Transjordanian tribes, uh, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, fought at the time of the Jewish conquest of Palestine. They're the tribes that stayed on the uh, opposite side of the Jordan River instead of going into Canaan with all of the other tribes. Uh, these people, plus the tribal nations of Moab, mer- mer- mentioned in verse 6, and Ammon in verse 7, were situated the east of the Jews' territory. Now, we're not sure who Gebel is, mentioned in verse 7. It might have been a tribal area south of the Dead Sea that's associated with Edom, Moab, Ammon, and Amalek. The the Amalekites in verse 7 also lived in the area. Or Gebel might have been uh, a Canaanite, might be a Canaanite, and a Phoenician port about 20 miles north of modern Beirut, known to the Greeks as Byblos. 
The modern site of ancient Byblos is called Jerbeel, or it's another form of the, of the name Gebel. Then in verse 7, you have as for Philistia and Tyre. These uh, areas were to the west of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. Philistia was south, which is usually called today the Gaza Strip. Tyre was to the north. The tenth and last tribal or national power mentioned in verse 8 is Assyria. The greater and later very fearsome power that always came down to Jewish territory from the north. It was Assyria led by Shalmaneser that overwhelmed, captured, and destroyed Samaria, overthrew the northern kingdom of Israel, and banished its people in 721 B.C. But that was after Psalm 83 was written. Now, we don't know of any time in Israel's history where, when, when these ten powers were actually joined together against her. So the listing in verses 6 through 8 uh, of all these, these names mentioned is probably a generalization. It's a way of saying that the Jews always seem to be surrounded by enemies and in danger of being wiped out, and is, it's exactly what we see today. But this really isn't anything new. This has been the real condition of Israel all through her history, even to this very moment, even more than ever before. Many people have gathered themselves against Israel, starting with Egypt. The Pharaoh of the generation just before Moses was born, who, uh, before Moses was born, this Pharaoh, he tried to enslave and then kill the Jews. All through Israel's history, the Pharaoh's behavior has been repeated over and over and over again. God had blessed the Jewish people because they were faithful to his ancient promises to Abraham. He said in Genesis 12, 2 through 3, God says, I will make you a great nation, speaking of Israel. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And if this nation ever decides, and this election could be very critical, to go against Israel, watch out for the United States of America. This resulted, Genesis 12, 2 through 3, this resulted in Israel's extraordinary growth in numbers so that the people literally became, it says in Genesis twenty two seventeen like the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. Israel's growth caused the Pharaoh to be fearful of Israel. And he started abusing the Israelites and he started oppressing the Jews to such a degree that he murdered as many of the Jewish male children as he could. But here's the thing, when the persecution was over, it didn't destroy the Jews. We read in verse 12, of, um, again, of uh, Genesis 22, 70, it says, but the more they, were, they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. Instead, the affliction, the, the affliction brought the destruction of Egypt by way of the plagues brought on through Moses, and eventually the death of Pharaoh and his soldiers when they tried to cross the Red Sea. Even after the Assyrians conquered their nation in 721 B.C., and again by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., the persecutions continued. We know from the New Testament that the Jews were kicked out of Rome during the days of the emperor uh, Claudius. Acts, after, uh, Acts 18 2 tells us that. Jews were also persecuted in the Middle Ages, before and during the Crusades. Thousands of Jews were abused, attacked, and murdered in Germany, France, Italy, and England. In the 15th and 16th century, these earlier massacres were repeated, only with more intensity. 
In the 15th century, 510 Jewish communities were exterminated in Europe and, were, uh, and more were even devastated. When the Jews were driven out of Spain at the end of the 15th century, the same 15th century, they relocated to Italy, Holland, England, and Turkey. But they were allowed to stay longer than a few weeks or a few months in some places. And in others, they were only allowed to live in a ghetto or Jewish neighborhood like in Venice and Rome. Now, coming to more modern times, we remember the organized attempt by Nazi Germany to completely wipe out the Jews. And more than six million Jews died in Hitler's death camps. And anti-Semitism still goes on today. I'm sure we all just recently heard about the Jews that were killed in that synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In all the records of recorded history, there's never been a people so surrounded by enemies or as persecuted as the, as the Jews have been. And yet, surprisingly, but we shouldn't be surprised, the Jews have prospered. In 1836, a world census pointed out that there were at that time three million Jews living in many countries. A hundred years later, in 1936, in spite of severe persecutions, where many Jews were killed, particularly in Russia, a second census showed that the Jewish world population had increased to 16 million an increase of 13 million in 100 years. There's only one way to explain this kind of growth. God. The hand of God has been on the Jews and that he's blessed them abundantly. So why has there been so much hatred for the Jews? Well, the Egyptians were afraid of, of them and hated them because of their numbers. Exodus 1, 8 through 10, listen to what it says. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make, we must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from our countries. Europeans hated them. Because they were so prosperous, because they were different and because of, of different and distorted religious feelings. Hitler hated them because they weren't of Aryan stock and because uh, he needed an enemy to focus his aggressive passions uh, of his people. Nazism claimed that the so-called Aryan peoples were superior to all others in the practice of government and the development of civilization. And yet these are not really reasons good reasons none reasons good enough to explain why this took place the best and the only full explanation has to be found in god's word in god's words to the serpent in the garden of eden when he said in genesis three fifteen, i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel in other words from now on you satan and the woman will be enemies and your offspring and her offspring will be enemies. Satan hates the Jews because God promised to bring the Messiah through them. Which is why Satan stirred up Pharaoh and his court. And why he caused Pharaoh to lash out against and kill the Jewish babies at the time of Christ's birth. And why Satan used Hitler later on in history. And in, and in the face of this vicious hatred... The preservation of the Jews all throughout history, in spite of their persecutions and scattering, has been both a mystery and a miracle. You know, usually in the Psalms, in many of the Psalms, at the end of certain verses or sections, you have the word Selah. 
which means to pause or to take a break, to stop and to meditate and think about what you just read. We don't always know or really know why these Selahs are placed where they are, but this one is well placed. Because you see, it's important for us to pause and to reflect on the terrible persecutions of these ancient people of God before going on to the prayer that, might, that God might judge their enemies. And today, we've heard the Arab countries say the very exact thing. They want to wipe out Israel as a nation. They want their name to become extinct. Just as it said here in Psalm 83. This has been going like, it's like we're, we're learning for, for centuries. Because again, you know, Satan hated the Jewish people because they promised Messiah would come through them. Let's look at verses 9 through 17. Deal with them. Notice here's Asaph's prayer talking about those that were just mentioned, these ten tribes that were just mentioned in the previous verses. Asaph is praying, God, deal with them as with Midian and as with Sesera. As with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuge, uh, refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, here it is. Notice, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God, what belongs to God, for a possession. O oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire burns the woods, and as the flames set the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Uh, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish. Asaph is now asking God to overthrow and destroy the people's enemies. Now, when you read this, you could say and you could look at this prayer as, as appearing to be a little vengeful. Especially when we've been taught, you know, in the New Testament to, to forgive our enemies and rather, rather, rather than call down fire and brimstone on them. Like the sons of thunder, had they wanted to call down fire and Jesus, hey, you know, take it easy, lighten up. You know, because we're taught the moral value to forgive as part of our way of life. Most of us think of ourselves as being, you know, too nice to have these kinds of thoughts or to pray this kind of a prayer. Even though that's probably not the case, not the case here. So how should we look at this prayer? Well, we have to look at the psalm first itself. And that God had destroyed Israel's enemies in this way in times past. So whatever else Asaph may be doing, he's at least asking to God, God, do what you've done in the past to your enemies. And two of these judgments are referred to here in verses 9 through 12. The first one in verse 9, notice Asaph says, Lord, deal with them like you did with Midian. There was a victory over Midian that's found in Judges chapter 6 through 8. And Asaph is referring to this victory here in verse 9, and he adds to it details there in verse 11, where four of the Midianite rulers are mentioned. And those mentioned in, in verse 11 are Oreb, Zeb, Zeba, and Zalmunna. This was an amazing victory for Israel because it was won by Gideon and only three passionate men the Midianites had been harassing the land they had been running off with the harvest of God's people and were at this time camped out in large numbers in a valley that was close by Gideon originally started out with three, 32,000 soldiers to fight this battle God said to Gideon nope 
you've got too many men to use to defeat the Midian armies, the Midianite armies. So Gideon told all, so, so Gideon told all those who were afraid to go home. And 22,000 men went home. So Gideon was left with only 10,000 men now. But God said, Gideon, nope, you still have too many men. So the numbers were whittled down even more to only 300. And these 300 men were known as Gideon's band. And with these 300 courageous men, Gideon then surrounded the Midianite camp at night. He had each of his men blow a trumpet and then suddenly break a pitcher that had torches hidden inside. And he had them shout, a sword of the Lord and for Gideon. The enemy soldiers were so shocked and so frightened that they jumped up in the darkness. They took off running for their lives. They drew their swords in all of the confusion and they killed thousands of their own men. So the soldiers that had surrounded Israel were themselves surrounded by the 300 courageous men and they were destroyed. The second thing is uh, that, that Asaph is talking about, the victory over Caesar found in Judges chapter 4 and 5. Caesar was the commander of an army equipped with 900 iron chariots and, and he had terrorized the land for 20 years. So the Israelite commander was Barak, who defeated Caesar's army with 10,000 men of Israel. And in the defeat, Caesar was forced to abandon his chariot and he took off running. He came to the tent of a man named Heber, whose wife was Jael. Caesar was exhausted and asked her if he could go into the tent so that he could rest. While he was sleeping, Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and a mallet and went to where he was lying down, and she drove this tent peg right through Caesar's temple into the ground, and that's where he died. So Israel was delivered by the armies of Barak and by a courageous woman. The victories of Barak and Jael are celebrated in the Song of Deborah, the prophetess in Judges chapter 5, verse 31. And this verse says, Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. Asaph here was clearly drawing on this and other victories of Israel when he wrote his psalm here. He was saying, O Lord, he says, just like you delivered us in the past, do it here. Do it again. He's saying, Lord, show yourself to be as powerful today in our day where he was talking about here in this writing as you were in past generations before us. And so before we you know, exactly pray this way ourselves, all right, we might, I'm sorry, we might not exactly pray the way, you know, uh, Asaph did this, this type of imprecatory prayer where he was praying for God to take vengeance out on them, um, Again, we might not exactly pray this way ourselves, but we can understand and we can sympathize with the prayer when we remember uh, under the circumstances of Israel, many and bitter persecutions throughout her history. That's what that's what took place. And that's how, how God you know, dealt with them. We would probably pray the same way and for the same thing under these circumstances if, if we were under them. That is for our enemies to be destroyed. You know, I know personally speaking, that that would be my heart. Lord, destroy them, wipe them out, have no mercy. The second thing we need to look at is the way the psalm handles this desire for judgment on the Jews' enemies. Notice it doesn't speak of them as the Jews' enemies. It says they're God's enemies. And that's the way we need to look at it. They're God's enemies. Those that come against God's children, they're God's enemies. Let's look at verse 2 again. Verse 2, it says, for behold, notice, your enemies, 
make a tumult. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. So Asaph said, Lord, your enemies, Lord, those who hate you, even when it mentions the people themselves like it does in verse 3, it's your people and your sheltered ones. He's talking about God's people. When the wicked plans of the enemy are mentioned, like they are in verse 5, it says, these plot against you, Lord. They're plotting against you. In verse 12, the enemies of Israel are mentioned for trying to steal their land, which again is called the pastures of God. You know, it's all God. In every case, Asaph says that it's God's cause that's in danger. Lord, it's you they're talking about. It's your land they want to take away. So you know what? It's God's battle, not the people's. Just as it's God's battle in our lives. When you see things in this light, from this perspective, that it's God's enemies, that it's his battle, it makes a big difference in how a person thinks about judgment. If the evil is thought of as being, it's against me, it's against me personally, then we want revenge. We want somebody to do something. We want to do something. We want to take some kind of action. But if it's thought of as being against God, then our response is to leave justice in God's hand. Lord, you deal with it. And you trust him for whatever he wants to do. And you know what? We can trust him. God, God isn't unresponsive. Or he, he, it's not that he's unconcerned. He says even himself in Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine and recompense. He says, hey, I will take vengeance. I will repay those he deserves. But he also says, I will do it in my time. When he says it's the right time, he says, I will do it. We read in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 20, Paul said, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And when we truly understand that and we believe it, we can be like the man who always turned to God whenever he was attacked and said, Lord, they're attacking your property. When, when, the, when the enemies come against me, I say, Lord, they're attacking your property. I'm your property, Lord. And then leave the judgment to God. The last thing that we want to look at is the way the psalm handles the surrounding dangers and the need for God's timely intervention and judgment, which is the most important of all. It's the way it ends. It's the way it ends here. Notice it calls for judgment that's true. But it ends by giving the purpose of that, for that judgment. Notice in verse 18. Asaph says that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. That is the most important reason. It calls for judgment. We see that, which is true. But it's in, it ends by giving the purpose for that judgment. Lord, that they may know you. That they may know that your name alone is the Lord and you are the most high over all the earth. In other words, even though Asaph wanted deliverance and judgment, the one thing that he wanted more is for other people, even the Jews, enemies, to come to know and obey the true living God. That's the thing, you know, that we should keep uh, first and foremost in our minds. When people come against us, whether it's because we're Christians or, or whatever it might be, We want to be a testimony so that they may come to know the true and the living God. But you know, if we act like the world and react like the world, they have nothing to judge our Christianity by. 
And you say, you're, you're no different than the world. You don't behave any different than the world. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for something different. They're looking for somebody with a testimony, somebody whose life matches their words. Most of the time, that's exactly what we do is rush to judgment or rush to calls for judgment. Now, judgment is going to come. Genesis 18.25, it says the God of all the universe will do what's right. This morning we were reading in Revelation 16 and 7, it it said that God's judgments are true and righteous. That whatever God does is righteous and it's holy. In Revelation 15, 3, we read that great, great and marvelous are your works, just and true are your ways. Psalm 92, uh, 5, the psalmist said, Oh Lord, how great are your works. Deuteronomy 32, 4, His work is perfect. All His ways are justice. And we read in the book of Acts, it says how He does all things well. God is too wise to make a mistake. He's too loving to be unkind. We need to remember that he is just, that whatever he decides to do is perfect in his infinite wisdom. In closing, in the commentary by James Voice, he says regarding this, this, uh, this, this, the first verse, he says, let me end by going back to the beginning of the psalm and reminding you of the greatest non-answer to that prayer in all history. Verse 1 says, do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. One day, he says, many centuries after this psalm was written, the Son of God was hanging on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem where he had been surrounded and condemned by all his cruel enemies. And in a sense, he prayed this prayer. He cried to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we don't read an answer from the Father. He didn't speak to his Son. At that time on the cross. It was good that God didn't answer. God didn't get involved in saving Jesus from his enemies or rescue him from the cross. And we can be thankful for that tonight. Again, uh, because again, God's silence to Jesus' forsaken cry meant our salvation from the Father's wrath. It was all upon Christ. It meant that we have the gospel and not just, you know, judgment to preach about. Can you imagine if that's all we had to preach to people about is the judgment of God? But how great we have the gospel, the hope of eternal life. We don't have just doom and gloom to tell people about, but we have the good news of hope and eternal life. So again, it's, you know, that's what they need to hear. They, they, this world needs hope. They need eternal life. You know, and they, they're living in a world of doom and gloom. It's all around them. We need to tell them the great news, the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this psalm, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that, God, we have a gospel of hope, not a gospel of doom and gloom, Lord. Father, a, a hope of, of a gospel of hope and joy. Father, of abundant life. Not necessarily in material things, but those things that money can't buy, as Isaiah said. We spend our money in, on things that, that can't get, bring us joy. 
And Hosea said, come and buy bread and buy milk. You know, without, without money. It's free for the asking. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, our prayer always is that the Holy Spirit would open your ears and your heart to His Word. And that light would go on and you would see the truth of God's Word. So that you might make a decision for Christ. Worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And this is your time. God has spoken to your heart. And you recognize your need for Jesus. Then as we worship. You get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. And I'll meet you there. And when the song's over. We'll pray together a prayer of faith.